Ray Brown's Talking Birds. Made possible by the generous support of the Bird Watchers General Store, Orleans, Cape Cod. Birdwatchersgeneralstore.com. By Vortex Optics with the VIP warranty, their unlimited lifetime promise to keep you and your optic covered. Learn more at vortexoptics.com. And Beautyo Books, an independent, family-owned bookstore carrying one of the largest selections of birding books in the world. Beautyobooks.com. And by Ocean State Bird Club. Springtime is every birder's favorite time of year. Join Ocean State Bird Club for new online talks and weekly virtual hangouts. And enjoy our quarterly newsletter with stories and photos about birds and birding. OceanStateBirdClub.org. And on Facebook, Ocean State Bird Club. Good morning. Welcome to our show number 837. And happy Father's Day to all the dads in our Talking Birds audience. We've placed a microphone in our studio window here to see if we can hear some birds outside by the Talking Birds garden. And once again, that microphone has managed to silence those birds quite effectively. But we'll keep listening. Well, in much of the country, especially the West, where conditions have become dangerous, much of the nation's weather is... Um, oh, it's too hot. Yes, that's it. We're running for shelter and shade. And birds are, too, or trying to, as many are in the midst of sitting on eggs or feeding young and unable to find a place where they can keep cool. And birds aren't able to perspire to lose heat, although they do lose, uh, lose some from their bills and feet. They try to stay in the shade on hot days when they can, but their main way of staying cool is by opening their bills and panting. The problem with that is that they lose a lot of water by panting and so risk dehydration. That seems like a good reason for us humans to provide water for birds and a good time to make sure that if you have a bird bath that it's frequently replenished with clean, fresh water. I'm just going to interrupt myself because I hear a Carolina wren singing out there. Yeah, he's back. (laughs) All right, our mic is working after all. Meanwhile, in addition to panting... Some birds are also anting. Huh? Yes, anting is that strange phenomenon in which birds rub ants all over their feathers for reasons that I think are still not fully understood. Thanks to our awesome British Columbia correspondent, Trevor Fletcher, we have a fascinating story about anting and the possible reasons for it. And one lucky photographer's photo of the phenomenon, you can find the story right now on our website, that's TalkinBirds.com. There's no G in talking. That is uh, correct. And here is our mystery bird. It's a preview of our mystery bird contest coming along a bit later in the show. Our mystery bird contest is presented by Red Start Birding. Red Start Birding is your new resource for birding optics, gear, and expertise. Great birding starts at RedStartBirding.com. Our mystery bird is a small but long-winged bird with mostly brown coloration on the back and white on the belly and under the square tail. Our bird, which breeds over almost the entire U.S. and southern Canada and winters mostly in Mexico and Central America, feeds uh, feeds by catching insects in flight, often close to the ground or the surface of the water. Clues there on our upcoming mystery bird contests and beautiful prizes await, including a $15 gift certificate for Beautio Books. 
home of one of the biggest selections of birding books in the world. And then a Droll Yankees feeder. It's the original iconic A6F classic tube feeder, which among other attributes contains a lifetime warranty against squirrel damage. Prizes there on our mystery bird contest coming along just a little bit later on uh, in this morning's show. And now... A royal salute to the uh, the royalty of our Talking Birds listener family, our Talking Birds ambassadors who help us kind of get the word out about our show and about birds and conservation. And we want to say thank you to Christine R. from my beautiful hometown of Boston, Massachusetts. Thank you, Christine, and thank you to husband and wife ambassadors Chris Mera and Kate Contakas from New York City. They're both school teachers in Manhattan. Kate says, we live in Harlem, but have a house upstate in Petersburg, New York, which is where we're able to do backyard birding all day long. We just bought the place in July. It was empty for a while, didn't have a lot of birds. Now we're seeing many and a variety of birds since we've made efforts to attract them with feeders and houses. Chris has been birding much longer than me, but I became fascinated when we were in New Caledonia and went on a hike to find the kagu. Fascinating bird. We've managed, or we managed, to find a few, and I've been hooked on birds since. Thank you, Kate, and thanks to all, and thanks to our Talking Birds listeners. We invite all our Talking Birds listeners to join Kate and Chris and Christine in our Talking Birds family. We think you'll like doing it. It's easy to do and super easy to uh, sign up for. Just go to TalkingBirds.com and click where it says Get Involved. There's no G in talking. Yes, I, I know. Still to come on our show today, we'll talk with researcher Steve Albert from the California-based Institute for Bird Populations about efforts to protect migratory birds through their full annual cycle. Plus, Mike O'Connor from the Bird Watchers General Store on Cape Cod will join us with an almost live from the archive edition of Let's Ask Mike on the topic of the great crested flycatcher nesting in his backyard. And up next, a bird we had the pleasure of seeing this week on a little pre-holiday excursion to southwest Rhode Island and southeast Connecticut is today's featured feathered friend. Presented by Birdwatching Magazine, for more than a quarter century, Birdwatching has been North America's premier magazine about wild birds and birding. They came straight at us across the marsh, like low-flying aircraft on a mission. Their downward-curved bills, deep wingbeats, and iridescent red-bronze coloring made them instantly recognizable as they passed overhead and then faded into the distance toward the shore. They were breeding adult glossy ibis. The glossy ibis is a medium-sized wading bird found mostly in marshes and wetlands year-round along the Gulf Coast of the U.S. and well up the Atlantic coast into northern New England and beyond in breeding season, and often wandering inland, with eBird sightings reported everywhere in the U.S. but the extreme northwest. They're also found in Asia, Africa, and Europe, and some glossies banded in Spain have been discovered well across the Atlantic on the Caribbean island of Barbados. The glossy ibis feeds by probing in the mud with its long bill for earthworms and marine worms and also feeding on many other prey, from crickets and grasshoppers to fish 
frogs, lizards, and snakes. They're a highly gregarious species, breeding in colonies where the nests tend to be just a couple of feet apart. In courtship, mated pair members bow to each other, engage in mutual preening, and coo as they clack their bills together. Although the glossy ibis is threatened by things like oil spills, pesticides, draining and ditching of marshes, and wetland destruction, the species is generally doing well worldwide. And the North American population increased about 4% between 1966 and 2015. It's Plegatus falcinellus, the glossy ibis. Today's Talking Birds featured feathered friend. Welcome again to our show number 837. If you like our little show, we hope you'll tell your friends about it. Well, Steve Albert is Assistant Director for Demographic Monitoring Programs with the Institute for Bird Populations. And he joins us now from Zuni, New Mexico. Good morning, Steve. Good morning. Wonderful to have you there. I'm, I'm, I'm sure you're glad you're inside. It's, we think it's hot here, but it's, it's even hotter where you are. Am I right? It's, it's really hot. Yeah, we're sort of in the epicenter of the drought and the, ex, you know, the extended drought and the heat wave that's going on right now. It's, it's not pretty. It's, it's not pretty for birds either. Yeah. I was out birding uh, this weekend with a friend of mine and it was, um, it was, um, yeah, it was pretty miserable. A lot of birds that we really expected to see didn't, mm-hmm. didn't see at all. Right, right. A difficult time for people and birds. And uh, one of the reasons you're doing the, the work that you're doing. Tell us about the Institute, uh, if you would. Steve, a little overview. Sure, we're a, um, a rather small nonprofit based out of Petaluma, California, about an hour north of San Francisco. Um, we have about 15 staff and we're spread all over the West and we do research um, primarily supporting uh, federal agencies, the Park Service, the Forest Service, the Bureau of Land Management, the Department of Defense, Defense and um, helping them manage their lands uh, because you know, birds, birds are great indicators uh, as we all know about environmental change um they kind of respond to change rapidly and you know they're visible and diurnal and vocal and you can hear and see them and you can it's it's a great window into things that are happening in the environment so yeah we do a lot of work in the national parks of the west the national forests looking at uh, either you know the whole suite of birds that are there or sometimes individual species um yeah so, and you also, I noticed you help train the next generation of avian conservationists, too. How, how does that work? Yeah, we have, um, through a lot of our programs, um, we were often the first uh, stepping stone professionally for a lot of young biologists just out of college. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of our, you know, one of the bigger ways that that happens is through our network of bird banding stations across North America called the, the MAPS Network, the Monitoring mm-hmm. Avian Productivity and Survivorship Network. And I'm sure a lot of your listeners, if you've ever banded birds, it's it's quite likely you've worked at a MAPS station. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's the sister network um, of bird banding stations in the tropics from Mexico all the way down to Argentina called the MOSI Network. And that's the Spanish acronym for Monitoring Overwinter Survival. Um, and a lot of young Latin American biologists got their first start in ornithology working at a Mosey station. Mm-hmm. Well, it kind of led into my next question about those two um, networks. And I think you've said about 90% of your job is uh, focused on, on MAPS and, and uh, Mosey. Um, what, what can you say about how they, how they work together, how they coordinate? It seems like it'd be a little complicated. Yeah, the, the MAPS network was founded um, in 1989 by the... Um, 
the, the man who founded the Institute for Bird Populations, Dr. Dave DeSanti. And um, he saw a need for, um, th there was a niche that needed to be filled in sort of bird science. And that was looking at what we call avian vital rates, which is a, it's kind of a fancy word for looking at the, the demographics of bird populations, the productivity, annual survival, recruitment, which is kind of, you know, getting a bird from being a one-year-old into the breeding population. And not a lot of people were doing that in a, in sort of a, a broad systematized type of way. And it's so important because uh, with migratory birds, if you see that a bird population is declining, one of the first questions you need to ask is, what's leading to that decline? Is it something that's going on in the breeding grounds in North America, or is it something that's happening, you know, during migration or on the wintering grounds in the tropics? So it's, it's a really important question to ask. So um, Dave uh, founded a, a network. It's, it started from a small handful of stations in the Sierra Nevada, and it eventually grew to hundreds and hundreds of stations across the country in just about every state and Canadian province. And um, then, of course, um, you know, as, as, as you, you and I have talked about, um, birds are only in our backyards for, you know, a few months of the year here in North America. And they spend the rest of the year, seven, eight, nine months of the year somewhere else. So we need to work with researchers at, at those somewhere else places to figure out what's going on to bird population. Right. We, we used to think of them, or maybe we still do, as our birds, but no, not, that's not quite accurate, is it? No, it's not. Uh, it, it, they're, they're somebody else's birds for, for more than half the year. <laughs> and one of the, one of the really neat things about the MAPS and MOSI networks is they, they provide these linkages, um, not just between birds um, you know, at the species level, but sometimes at the population level or even at the individual bird level, which I think is, is really, it's sort of profoundly moving and interesting. You know, mm -hmm. you, 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 that Carolina wren um, out, uh, you know, out in, outside your window, somebody else has responsibility responsibility for taking care of that bird and its habitat you know, mm. for much of the year. So, you know, who are those folks? Where do, where do those birds go? And how can we work with those people to protect birds all year round? Indeed. And Steve, you have a number of ecologists and biologists on the on your staff there. Tell us a bit about uh, their work uh, briefly, if you could. Sure. Yeah. Um, we work, um, like I said, all over the West. Uh, we work in the Pacific Northwest where we work with the Park Service there for about Oh, over 20 years now, um, looking at birds in, in national parks like uh, Mount Rainier and North Cascades and Olympic National Park. Uh, we have projects out uh, on, in the South Pacific on the, uh, on, in uh, Saipan and, and American Samoa. Mm. We work uh, all up and down the Sierra Nevada in California with uh, Yosemite and Kings Canyon and um, other national parks there. And um, yeah, we work with the Department of Defense, helping uh, helping the DOD manage their land sustainably and adhere to environmental laws and protect migratory birds and endangered species. Mm -hmm. Well, Steve, uh, I, I like to ask uh, folks doing this kind of research and monitoring, how you see the future of birds? And we talked about this uh, this heat wave here, but in light of climate change and all, all the other threats, uh, can you be optimistic? Sure, there, there is a little bit of cause for optimism. You know, I think um, the report that uh, came out a couple of years ago, the, the three billion birds lost that I'm sure a lot of uh, listeners, you know, saw made, made a lot of waves um, in the, not, not, in, in, not only in the scientific community, but in, in the popular press as well. Um, the overall picture was not very good. Um, you know, nearly a, a, a third of the, you know, the North American avifaun has have been lost in the last 50 years, uh, and that includes 
desert birds, forest birds, all kinds of uh, mm -hmm. different types of birds. But one of the bright spots in that report were, was waterfowl. Um, ducks and geese have actually made quite a strong rebound. And, um, and that was no small and simple task. It, it took a, a really strong effort by federal legislation, by hunters, by conservationists, um, nonprofits, state governments, everybody sort of came together uh, and realized the importance of wetlands and, and how important that was. And it did, it did great. Um, ducks and geese and other other water, um, you know, waterfowl have rebounded really strongly. Um, and I guess the other cause for optimism is endangered species. You look at the bald eagle and you know the brown pelican, peregrine falcon. Um, with sustained effort and you know dedicated funding, those species have, have come back and, and come back strongly and have, have been delisted. So th those are two examples I like to point mm -hmm. to, and uh, you know, in, in all the in all the other bad news. So mm. we can do it. We can make it happen. But it takes uh, it takes a lot of work, mm -hmm. and a lot of money. Well, thanks for that. Steve Albert is Assistant Director for Demographic Monitoring Programs with the Petaluma, California-based Institute for Bird Populations. Their website is pretty easy to remember and most certainly worth uh, checking out. Just think of bird populations. It's birdpop.org. Steve, thanks so much for the important work you're doing, and thanks for being on the show. Oh, it was a pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Coming up next here... On Talking Birds, it's our mystery bird contest in just one minute. The flutter of a tail feather, the flash of a wing bar in mid-flight. You don't always have a lot of time to identify a bird in nature, let alone to appreciate its beauty. But with Vortex Optics, you'll have the power to bring every wild moment closer. When you choose Vortex, you're choosing to have a partner in the field as passionate about nature as you are. Whether you're spotting old friends on the backyard feeder or packing for a once-in-a-lifetime trip to add a few species to your life list, Vortex offers a full range of optics and optics accessories for every birder and every budget. And whether the birds are taking you to another state or another country, you're always covered by the Vortex VIP warranty, an unlimited lifetime promise to keep you and your optic covered. If you'd like to learn more or if you need help choosing your next optic, Give Vortex a call at 1-800-4-VORTEX or visit vortexoptics.com. There it is, the sound of our mystery bird. Small but long-winged, mostly brown coloration on the back and white on the belly and under the square tail. Our bird which breeds over almost the entire U.S. and southern Canada and winters mostly in Mexico and Central America feeds by catching insects in flight often close to the ground or uh, on the surface or close to the surface of the water. That's our mystery bird. What do you think it is? Remember, this contest has a special feature. You don't necessarily have to get the right answer to be a winner if no one else gets the exact answer. So give it a try or tell us definitively what that bird is at 781-837-4900. Please call us as soon as you can. 781 837-4900. Beautiful prizes include the Droll Yankees original iconic A6F classic tube feeder featuring durable metal parts. The Droll Yankees says squirrels can't chew and they back that up by including a lifetime warranty against squirrel damage with this classic feeder. Bonus prize, a $15 gift certificate for Beautio Books, home of one of the biggest selections of birding books 
in the world. All kinds of topics there relating to birds and nature. 781-837-4900 is the number to call. Meanwhile, we'll check in with Mike O'Connor. It's Let's Ask Mike, almost live from the archive in just one minute. Beautio Books carries one of the largest selections of birding books in the world. New, used, and rare books covering everything from backyard birding to general ornithology. From field guides to photography skills, biography, fiction, and humor. You'll find it all along with the knowledgeable customer service you've been looking for in one convenient place. Beautiobooks.com B-U-T-E-O Beautiobooks.com my name is Susan Tommy Barrett, and I'm calling from Orlando, Florida. What I enjoy about being a Talking Birds ambassador is I like to be able to share with other people a good way to enjoy birds in another manner besides going out into the field. I would encourage listeners to become a Talking Birds ambassador because it's a great way to share your love of birds with other people. Talking Birds listeners, we hope you'll join our ambassadors family at TalkingBirds.com. Mike O'Connor's down there at the famous Birdwatcher's General Store, Orleans, Cape Cod, Massachusetts, and he is joining us on the telephone right now. Good morning, Mike. Hey, good morning, Ray. I hear the theme song playing. That's uh, that would be your your cue, so you can start talking anytime when you when you hear that. It's just. Uh, have you uh, done anything to kind of match uh, Ian Davies and friends in the uh, number of bird sightings? He had seven hundred twenty thousand uh, in one day. Can you uh, can you top that? Oh, that's nothing. That's a piece of cake. Yeah, a piece of cake. I've got one. Count them one. Yeah. Great crested flycatcher nesting in a box. She's still there. And last week she had just finished building a nest. And over the course of the week she'd been laying. Typically birds lay an egg a day, and the songbirds and stopped. She stopped at five. Mm-hmm. And you know, and it's, I think it's really cool is that, you know, you think, well, should to lay an egg, and I got customers who call about this, you know, the bird laid an egg and then left, and that's kind of exactly what they do. They lay an egg, and then the next day they'll lay another one. In between, they don't do a thing in terms of songbirds, because they want all these birds to hatch at once, so if she doesn't start incubating until the last egg is laid, which in this case was egg number five, and then she sits tight on them. She develops a brood patch, which means there's like bare skin on her on her belly, so she can keep the eggs warm. And the reason why she wants all the eggs to hatch at once is because when they fly out, she can't, you know, attend the birds in the nest and tend the birds that are flying around the neighborhood at the same time. So they all have to kind of go at the same stage and fly around at the same time so the parents can keep an eye on them. They can't do they do both. So she doesn't start incubating until the last egg is laid. And then the incubating is really intense, nonstop, all night long. And she almost never sleeps. She looks like someone, you know, her eyes close a little bit, like somebody on the commuter rail nodding off, and then she wakes up right away. <laughs> and then she'll, she'll, she digs down and she rotates the eggs and she sits down again. And about every 20 minutes, she does that whole process of moving the eggs and rotating the eggs. And only once in a while, she'll fly out uh, to get some food. And for some reason, you know, and every bird is different, but the old man just he hangs around but he's not helping in terms of incubating or even bringing her food that i can see should you know you would think she, he would reach in with a bug once in a while no he's just like lost <laughs> he's just like totally clueless she could out gets her own food maybe she meets him somewhere and feeds offers her some food in the tree someplace i can't i can't follow that 
but it's so exciting. So um, that's what we got going on now, and hopefully, maybe not next week because it's about two week period. Most songbirds takes about two weeks to incubate, so we're we're looking at another ten days. Any other birds uh, nesting ar- around there, or that you spotted at all? Well, this is late. You know, these yeah. birds eat so many insects and so many large insects. They they're like purple martins. They don't really hatch till later in the June. And later in June, the, my chickadees have already fledged. My tree swallows have already fledged. But these guys depend on large butterflies and dragonflies and bigger bit bugs. So they really haven't gotten, they don't get going. Strangely, I think this is late. You know, middle, it's mm-hmm. almost the end of June, and these guys are just settling on the eggs. So it'll be a while. All right, and goldfinches are next. Have they started nesting uh, yet? Or? Yeah, I think I think right around now. So goldfinches will be get will be getting going. And the hummingbirds, people are complaining not enough hummingbirds. Well, they just finished nesting, and another week or two, the hummingbirds will be back, and we'll have plenty of those. I hope. All right, talk to you next week, Mike. Okay, sounds cool. Mike O'Connor at the Birdwatchers General Store, Orleans, Cape Cod. Birdwatching Magazine has a new membership program. Benefits include detailed bird ID articles from Ken Kaufman and David Sibley, tips and stories about bird photography, access to quarterly e-workshops on identifying and photographing birds, and complimentary print and digital subscriptions to Birdwatching Magazine. Learn more at birdwatchingdaily.com slash memberships. The Mystery Bird Contest continues. Our bird is a small, long-winged, mostly brown bird. Brown on the back and white on the belly and under the square tail. 781-837-4900 is the number. And Megan is somewhere in Arkansas. Good morning, Megan. Good morning. Good morning. Nice to hear from you from Arkansas. I've just been looking up uh, nicknames from Arkansas. It's the Bear State, the Wonder State, the Land of Opportunity, the Natural State. You had a lot of nicknames there. And that, <laughs> yeah. And that didn't even cover the Razorback State, right? Right. <laughs> w- w- which one do you prefer? Um, I prefer the Natural State. The Natural State. I think mm-hmm. that's, a, that's a pretty good choice there. I like that. Yeah. So, uh, Megan, you heard our clues on the Mystery Bird Contest, and you say what? I think it's a northern rough-winged swallow. That's pretty good for somebody from down south. I'm not sure if they... Uh, well, they would be in, in your area, too, because they're pretty much yeah. uh, all over the country here, in the, at least in breeding, uh, breeding uh, time. Nice job. Nice job, Megan. We have time, I think, for our uh, uh, um, bonus question. Would you like to try it? Sure. This is a, a multiple choice. Last week we heard from our friend Kimberly out in Alcatraz Island. She's a docent out there. So we have an Alcatraz question. What is Alcatraz Island named for? Is it A, the kind of rocks that form the island? B, a Viking ship? C, a bird species? Or D, a guy named Al, Alcatraz? <laughs> no, that couldn't be. What do you think? Um... I think it's actually named after a bird species. Yeah, this is a bird show. I mean, after all, right? <laughs> so it turns out that a Spanish explorer, Juan Manuel de Ayala, mapped Alcatraz Island for the first time in 1775. He named it La Isla de los Alcatraces, or Alcatraces, Spanish for the Island of the Pelicans. Thanks okay. to the many white pelicans he found roosting on the rocky shores. So the anglicized version of that name, Alcatraz Island, remains to this day. And, of course, we still remember Burt Lancaster's movie portrayal. Do you remember this of the Birdman of Alcatraz? That was Robert Stroud. 
But that's another trivia thing there. <laughs> Megan, thank you so much. Uh, you got them both right. Stay on the line, if you will, and uh, we'll arrange to send you those uh, beautiful prizes down there to Arkansas. Thank you. Thank you so much. That's Megan correctly identifying our mystery bird, the northern rough-winged swallow. It gets its name, by the way, from the outer wing feathers, which have little hooks or points on their leading edges. And if you run a finger from the base to the tip, it's said to feel like rubbing your finger along a rough file. So why those little hooks are there, uh, from what we've been able to glean, nobody really knows. That's our show for today. Next week, we'll welcome a guest from Audubon Rockies in Fort Collins, Colorado. Jamie Weiss will be here to tell us about the Habitat Hero program that provides folks with resources to create bird habitat. We're out of time. Thanks so much for listening. See you next week. Ray Brown's Talking Birds. Made possible by the generous support of the Bird Watchers General Store, Orleans, Cape Cod. Birdwatchersgeneralstore.com. By Vortex Optics with the VIP warranty. Their unlimited lifetime promise to keep you and your optic covered. Learn more at vortexoptics.com. And Beautio Books, an independent, family owned bookstore carrying one of the largest selections of birding books in the world. Beautiobooks.com. And by Ocean State Bird Club. Springtime is every birder's favorite time of year. Join Ocean State Bird Club for new online talks and weekly virtual hangouts. And enjoy our quarterly newsletter with stories and photos about birds and birding. OceanStateBirdClub.org and on Facebook. Ocean State Bird Club.